Sparkin' Conversations, a podcast for electricians, hosted by an electrician. The Electrical Association is committed to keeping electricians in the know about the latest developments in the industry. Experts will be on to help answer the tough questions, talk shop, and give tips to make your jobs work. Greetings, I would like to welcome you to another podcast presentation of Sparkin' Conversation by the Electrical Association. I'm Mike Miller, your host. Once again, I would like to thank you for choosing this Electrical Association podcast for one of the sources of information you use to follow what's going on in the electrical trade. I'd also like to extend our special thanks to Federated Insurance for being one of our sponsors, and these are the many activities of the association. Today's presentation features an extremely interesting individual who works for the Department of Labor and Industry for the state of Minnesota. Our guest today is Mr. Sean O'Neill, who's an investigation supervisor for the Department of Labor and Industry Construction Codes and Licensing Division. Sean, I'd like to welcome you to our presentation today. Please give us some details about your past and your current affiliation with the Department of Labor. Good morning, Mike. I appreciate you having me. I've been the investigation supervisor at the department now for roughly four and a half years. And prior to that time, I was a senior investigator with the department and I handled investigations involving electric, plumbing, um, residential building construction. And that, that provided a great foundation for the position I'm serving in now. And prior to that time, I, I was an investigator with the long-term care regional ombudsman office in St. Paul. So that's a little bit uh, about my background and, and what brought me to the Department of Labor. I see. Sean, when we think about enforcement, which of course you're involved in, the term can trigger a vision of a shady person watching every move we make to find our faults. And of course, once that happens, you run us through the legal system when those faults are uncovered. Please share with our listeners, if you could, a profile that is more realistic other than the shady character watching us? Certainly, certainly. Anytime we get a complaint, Mike, um, one, one thing that I encourage my investigators to do is to relay to subjects of our investigations that on the front end, it's simply an allegation. We, we will not determine if a violation, we cannot determine if a violation has occurred until a thorough investigation has taken place. So hopefully that, that gives some of your listeners uh, a, some peace of mind that we are going to seek to get the contractors or the individual side of the story if we've got an allegation. But that is, that is probably the most important takeaway with what we do is on the front end, it's simply an allegation of a potential violation of the contractor licensing law. You know, that is an interesting stance you take there simply because I look at it. If I, for example, were have to have been accused of a wrongdoing, you're not guilty until proven innocent. It's the opposite. And I appreciate the fact that you folks follow that standard because, you know, everybody, I think, is in the mode of trying to do the best they can from start to go. Uh, and gosh, 
sometimes you go awry in the fact that some mistakes are made and people own up to them. Sometimes it makes it a little easier. And I appreciate the fact that you guys are taking a real proactive effect to that or approach to that to makes us feel a little bit more comfortable from a standpoint of, gosh, he's out to get me. So, well, looking at the economic situation, Sean, in the state where dollars are really tight, and of course they are, contractors are pretty busy and material shortages have taken their toll on job success. Has the department seen any remarkable impact, more or less, of enforcement activities driven by these conditions? I wouldn't say so, Mike. I, you know, keeping in mind that the construction industry as a whole really did not have much of a pause during the pandemic. A lot of the construction trades kept on truck in full force throughout the pandemic, and but we do recognize that some of those factors do influence and contribute to violations in the field. And for example, supervision ratio, you know, that can be a combination of poor bookkeeping and um, perhaps just maybe a, a loss of control on a job site in regards to control and which employees are on. Do we have enough journey workers and master electricians to handle the supervision ratio today? So, so I would say, no, we haven't seen a vast either increase or decrease in the complaints and the violations that, that we're on. Um, investigating. Well, that's kind of refreshing to hear because we, we as the electrical workers typically don't have a real gauge to measure that by other than hearsay on the street and gosh, this guy just got nailed for a poor ratio standard or wiring without a license or things like that. And that, that's good to hear that you haven't seen an uptick in that because, you know, when, when times get tough, people still have to make the truck payment, the insurance payment and whatever. And I, I think, of the, gosh, that was me. I got to do what I got to do. And I'm glad to hear that, that people are taking the high road on something like that. I mean, I'm sure it's incidents are occurring, but again, hearing your voice telling us that it's not necessarily uptick type of uh, investigations. That's good to hear. And, you know, so Sean, in your supervisory position of enforcement with the department, do you find offenders your department deals with are willing to admit their mistakes and move on? Or do most of the time you end up uh, resolving it in court with them? It really depends, Mike, on on how the the investigation proceeds, the the violations that we either have substantiated or are investigating, and also it comes down to, in my opinion, license versus unlicensed. Many, I would say, the vast majority of subjects of our investigation that elect not to cooperate with with one of our department investigations are unlicensed. Um, on the rare side, uh, a licensee may elect not to cooperate or communicate with, with one of our investigators. So it really depends on the situation. Oftentimes, the violations, if we can substantiate them, can be addressed informally. And if we, I'll use a, um, an example of an unlicensed electrical contractor, if we've got solid evidence that can prove up the unlicensed activity took place, especially with electrical, considering the the life safety concerns. It's it's important that we get to the bottom of the violations and address it from an enforcement standpoint. So we do on occasion get subjects who will just refuse to cooperate with one of our investigators. And it's important to know that if we have evidence to substantiate the, the violations, we're going to move forward. So often we will initiate in those instances enforcement action and address the violations via a cease and desist order, for example, and a monetary penalty. 
But if the unlicensed individual elects not to cooperate with us and we've got evidence to prove the violations took place, we're more, more moving forward. And, and even in those cases, if, if the department issues an order with an accompanying monetary penalty, that subject for our investigation will have a chance to, to request a hearing to, to contest the department's position. So the, the best case scenario in our investigations is we do get cooperation, we're communicating with the subject of our investigation and we can resolve things informally. Because obviously we're in the business of compliance, we're not about punishment, so to speak, and we, we wanna make sure that we're getting compliance, especially when electrical is involved. We can't, we can't have unlicensed electrical going on just because of the safety concerns. Well, I certainly agree with that, Sean. One thing that I'd like to ask you is kind of a little off the beaten path, and that's from the time an investigation starts by an allegation by maybe another person turning someone in for what they perceive as incorrect procedures and wiring or no permit or whatever, what is the normal time lapse of the time that you get the the case until the time it's resolved? Is that short order? Or is that long? How does that work? Well, we'll start with intake, Mike, because my investigators, once once I assign a investigation to one of my investigators, they have a mandate to within seven days respond back to the, to the complainant, whether it's a homeowner or a competitor or electrical inspector, uh, to let them know, you know, hey, my name is Jim or John and I'm assigned, I'm, I'll be handling this investigation. If you have any new information, you can supply it to me and I'll add it to the investigative file. What happens is once the investigator does their fact finding, collects information, they're gonna reach out to the, the contractor, to the individual who's alleged to be engaging in violations. So that typically we give contractors, subjects of our investigations two weeks to get us a written response to the allegation. So, you know, really it could be, the best case scenario is investigation may wrap up within three to four weeks. However, there's instances where um, an investigation may take a number of months to conclude. So it really depends on, on the situation. That's a great answer. I kind of expected there's no concrete answer, but I think that a speedy trial, as it were, listed in the law industry is very fair and, and appropriate. So moving on to our next question, you probably guessed I was going to ask this, but of all the enforcement activity you're engaged in relating to electrical workers, is there any one group of violations or statutes that seem to be top on the list? And if so, what are the cause of this or what is the cause of this? Well, on the top of the list, Mike, is unlicensed activity. Um, that makes up a lot. I, I, I'll say the majority of the complaints that we receive involving electrical work are unlicensed contractors, individuals. And, and really, I think that often it's individuals who know the license requirement uh, when it comes to electric plumbing, people sometimes bouncing outside of the trade that they're licensed to engage in. Um, going, switching gears and going to licensed contractors, as, as you mentioned, the supervision ratio, failure to, to ensure that your unlicensed electricians are both registered with the department and supervised if they're engaging in electrical work. And failure to, failure to file requests for electrical in, uh, inspection, failure to make corrections is more on the rare side. And really when it comes to electrical contractors, failure to correct code violations is more on the rare side. We do get a handful throughout the year. 
And often those those are, are easily resolved with just making sure it, it passes final inspection. And, and I'd like to note, Mike, that the folks that we work with in CCLD, our electrical inspectors, uh, the supervisors are really fantastic to work with. Often they're able to resolve things informally in the field. If they've reached out to a contractor two, three times and they just can't get a response, that's the sort of situation where, where they'll hand it over to us in enforcement and we'll take the baton from there. Sure. Okay. Well, another thing, John, education's everything. And of course, uh, the, our electrical association is directly involved with that. And just kind of looking over your shoulder, uh, many agencies sponsor educational offerings to get the word out about encouraging constituents or participants in the trade to be knowledgeable and respectful of established rules. Uh, has the department been involved in anything like that or promotional campaigns that let people know what the rules are? Yes, yes. We do um, a fair amount of, of outreach and education um, on, a, on a routine basis within CCLD. We've got an education unit that does a fantastic job lining up speaking engagements for our staff, for our um, subject matter experts to get out and push information out and, and be a resource to our stakeholders, which is important for us. And, and a few examples would be the annual Building Official Institute. We also have a, a Gov delivery format within um, our department where we can push information out to our licensees and addresses that, that we have on file just based on, on license status. Also, the Board of uh, Electricity is a great way for people to, to stay in tune with um, legislative changes and, and licensing changes. And um, also there's a, a public forum opportunity for people to, to speak at, at that forum. So, and, and also our education unit I like to share, Mike, is putting together more self-paced learning opportunities for people who are interested, contractors. And, and that's, that's a great option for people because you can do those sorts of continuing education at your, your own pace. And often it includes a, a PowerPoint and it's narrated. So I think that's a growing part of what our education unit is is offering, which I think is is fantastic. I'm impressed. I had no idea. And, and now that you often, or now that you mentioned self-paced, now is that something that an individual can actually go online and complete the class and actually get continuing education credits for it toward renewal? Correct. Correct. And if if your listeners were to go to our website, just punch in education, or if you go to the construction codes and license division section of that website, there'll be further information about those self-paced learning opportunities. And I, I see that as a growing part of, of what our education unit does. And I, I think there's going to be more to come in regards to those offerings, Mike. Well, I tell you what, we being in a very similar business, I can assure you, you're correct. There are. I think you <laughs> hit on a number there for darn sure. So shifting gears a little bit back in the investigations there, Sean, tell our listeners how typical investigation would proceed if an anonymous tipper received alleging wrongdoing by an electrician. Well, that, that's a, a great topic to discuss, Mike, because we do get a fair number of anonymous complaints. Um, whether it's left on our intake line in enforcement or via our, our intake email, where we may get complaints and tips in regards to uh, allegations of wrongdoing. And the, the important thing to, to share with your listeners in regards to anonymous complaints are 
if we don't have any supporting evidence that that gives us reason to believe that there's violations taking place, often we'll circle back to that anonymous complainant if they've left their contact information and say, hey, we need some supporting evidence here because we're not going to open up an, an investigation without that supporting evidence. And, and a good example of that would be probably about a year ago, I had, I, I was receiving, or our department was receiving pretty much a weekly complaint against one individual who was appropriately licensed and alleging that that he was engaging in in moonlighting and, and doing side jobs um, separate from his employer. And after two or three that really fizzled out, we determined that, you know, we had a situation where someone was really gunning for this, this licensee, but really didn't have any solid evidence that ever led to anything. So, so what we did is we let that person know, hey, unless you have concrete supportive evidence here, we're, we're not, we're not going to pursue this further. And, and just as you mentioned, Mike, the intake sources can, are, are, are pretty diverse whether it's a homeowner, whether it's uh, a neighbor, a, uh, an assigned building official or an electrical inspector, we get complaints from, from various different um, sources. And it can be challenging because sometimes we may get on the front end, which sounds to be very serious, very solid evidence, we may ask our electrical team to, to do a spot check, stop out at the, the place where the electrical work is taking place, and they find nothing. And, and we appreciate that when they're able to support, support us and go out and, and make those spot checks, but sometimes they fizzle out. And, and that's where it really comes down to, if we do open up an official investigation, we want your side of the story because do we have something or, or is this just maybe sour grapes on behalf of a, um, a former employee that uh, ended their employment on a, on a sour note or, or it is, is it something that, that has legs, so to speak, and, and we, we need to investigate further. So each, each case is, is, is really unique. And again, when it comes down to anonymous complaints, the more information that, that someone can provide us, the, the better. That, that is superior information. You know, I, I think I'm, uh, when I was a contractor, uh, I was actually allegedly blamed for wiring without filing a permit. The permit just didn't happen to be on the project. On the, we had the, where I'm from, you put a, a sticker on the outside of the panel or the meter socket or wherever the outside service was, and that's what neg- uh, proved that it was signed up. But we had people call and say, hey, he didn't do that. And I said, well, I sure did. Well, it's not on there, but it's posted at the panel. So certainly some misunderstandings can linger and cause that. But I appreciate your thoroughness. So that's a great answer. The next question I'd like to move into is once a person has ignored the presence of, of your investigation and pretty much said, I'm not interested, I don't know what you're talking about or whatever, when you actually now we're, we're actually calling them to answer to perhaps a charge. How often do they get involved with having their own counsel present for that or their attorney? Is that something that usually happens or do they wait? That's a last resort or how does that work? It's uh, that uh, the, the opportunity to have legal representation is certainly afforded to, to everybody uh, that is involved in our investigations, licensed and unlicensed. And I would say, Mike, probably 20% of the time we will um, hear back. One of our investigators will send a official request for information out to either an unlicensed contractor or licensed, and we will hear back from that party's attorney. 
which is is certainly within their rights. And, and sometimes it can be helpful uh, if, let's say, uh, because we will sometimes get a response from somebody that is um, a little bit, not frantic, but they're concerned. They, they've never been under investigation from the department. They're concerned about saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. So they will, they will ask their attorney to respond back on their behalf, which is certainly fine. Um, again, it doesn't happen all the time, but probably 20% of the time. And from an enforcement standpoint, it, it's good that to know, and I, I think I reinforced this when, when your team had asked me to come out and speak at your, your annual conference earlier in the year, was as a licensee, licensees do have to cooperate and respond when the enforcement unit reaches out and says, hey, we've got an allegation. It involves work done at, at 123 Elm Street. What's your response? And just ignoring it is not an option. I would say, Mike, maybe four or five times a year, we do end up as a department having to have to issue an order just based on a licensee's failure to respond, which we don't want to do. And and certainly taking enforcement action like that, say proposing to suspend a license until we get full cooperation, is a last resort. So. So getting back to your question about legal representation, certainly it's afforded to everybody. It's not necessary, but certainly sometimes it, it comes in handy. And some people feel like uh, they need some, some further peace of mind uh, with representation. So certainly it, it's available for licensees. Great. Sean, I got an easy one for you. I think here's instead of really the hard ones, but and it's this. If an individual were interested in initiating a change to an existing rule or statute or introducing a new rule, is there a procedure they could follow to do this that you're aware of? Well, they should contact their, their local legislator. That that's the place to bring their proposed change or their idea to either modify, delete, add language to existing ruler statute. So that's where they should go. Um, sometimes stakeholders will reach out to our department and ask if, if uh, you know, if we were to push this idea, would the department have any concerns? Would the department support it? Obviously in those cases, Mike, what we would do is route that to our commissioner's office because we can't speak on behalf of the, the entire department within enforcement. We would route that up the chain of command and get direction from our commissioner's office because sometimes we can testify at the legislator in support of proposed change to legislation. And uh, sometimes we, we maintain more of a, a neutral stance. And so it really depends, but the an individual interested in going down that road should contact their local legislator first. Perfect. And that's the, the response I actually expected. It, it's really tough, but uh, rules are everything. And I think democracy that we have is great. And the fact that we do have a, an ability to interact with that to perhaps promote a change. I, I think that's great. And I'm glad you were able to touch on that. Your position responsibilities are extremely interesting. It's been most kind of you, in my mind, to share your views and perspectives of the Department of Labor and Industry in Minnesota and what they're doing to ensure that electrical workers are complying with laws that everyone is expected to follow. If our listeners have any questions related to anything we visited about or would like additional information relating to activities of your agency, how would they contact you? So, Mike, we've got various uh, forms of communication that people can reach out to us at the department. We've got, if, if it's enforcement, enforcement or licensing related, 
we would encourage uh, a call at our, our enforcement intake line, which is 651-284-5069. Uh, we also have our electrical experts and inspectors available. And, and so when it comes down to maybe a code-related question, Mike, that's where I would direct a caller if they wanted to chat through a situation with our electrical inspectors. And the best way to route an inquiry to that team is via their email, which would be dli.electricity at state.mn.us. And they're, they're great about responding back to inquiries same day. And many people use that as, as a good resource. Obviously, our website is probably the best place for people to go. Uh, we do have an opportunity if, if people are, are wishing to submit a complaint involving electric, plumbing, uh, residential building construction. There's an electronic form where people may submit a complaint. And, and that can be anonymous. And, and again, going back to your question about anonymous complaints, I would just encourage your listeners, if you've got a complaint alleging wrongdoing, we just need some supportive evidence to take it to the next step. Wow. That's great. Well, another program draws to a close. I'd like to thank our guest, Sean O'Neill, for taking time out of his busy schedule to share with our listeners information from the Department of Labor and Industry for the state of Minnesota about construction codes and licensing and enforcement services. Thank you, Sean. Or any final message you'd like to leave with our listeners? Mike, I, I appreciate you having me on. This has been great. If you don't mind, I'd just like to add for your listeners that may know Charlie Durenberger. He is retiring from state service tomorrow, and Charlie's been with us for 31-plus years. He's been a fantastic leader within CCLD, and we wish him well. So thank you for letting me share those uh, kudos for Mr. Durenberger. Well, absolutely. Good luck, Charlie, in the future. Thanks for your service to this fine state. I'd like to thank our executive, Katie Grams, for her work behind the scenes to make this podcast happen without her legwork and a lot of it she does. We wouldn't be here today. So thank you, Katie. Also, a big thank you to Federated Insurance, who sponsored this presentation. With that, I'd like to wish you all safe travel until you join us again for another Electrical Association Sparkin' Conversations. I'm Mike Miller, your host. Good day. Sparkin Conversations was a production of the Electrical Association. For more information, visit www.electricalassociation.com. <laughs>